So this week, gang, we're um, in the midst of a new series. Last week we talked about saints and, and Advent, and so we're starting this series on some saints whose saint days fall in the season of Advent in the church. And so we're going to be starting off our series with the, the great and famous Santa Claus, also <laughs> known as Saint Nicholas. Yes, yeah, so Saint Nicholas was a bishop. He was the Bishop of Myra way back when. I can't remember the exact year, but it was around the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, so, so like really long time around ago. the year 300, give or take. Yeah, so very long time ago, he was a bishop, and he is well known for several things, such as attending the Council of Nicaea, punching a heretic, throwing gold into people's windows, and also possibly cutting down a possessed tree. <laughs> So there's a preview of all the things that we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about in the course of this episode. Maybe to catch ourselves up here. Okay, so laying the groundwork. We talked before that when we talk about saints, we're not talking about like superheroes uh, who have no flaws or failures or anything like that. But the sense that all the people of God, all the, all the, all the followers of Jesus are saints, um, and that it's worth telling their stories. That just because mm-hmm. we're all saints doesn't mean that there aren't things we can learn from each other. Um, here we are recording, and it's recently after the great uh, comic book artist Stan Lee passed away. And so there's a, a quote of his that's been sticking in my head since Stan Lee's passing. Um, even though he's famous for creating a bunch of characters, uh, you know, who are obviously you know teams of superheroes, you know, the Avengers and Iron Man and Thor and Black Panther and all these people, um, that Lee was famous for saying too that heroes are people who, in whatever circumstances, do what's right, mm-hmm. uh, and that it's not about powers, it's not about uh, title or a cape or uh, a theme or having a bat cave, uh, although those are that's DC. Um, <laughs> oh, you just dropped <laughs> dude. I'm a church nerd and a comic book nerd. Um, <laughs> But um, that notion that at, at, at the the best writers or, or creators like like Stanley would have said that the point of their story wasn't to say that only certain people matter because they have powers, but that those stories are helpful because they remind us that all of us are capable of being heroic. Uh, and heroic for him wasn't about um, necessarily stopping a speeding train, but about doing the right thing and about being able to speak up or being able to be courageous, that kind of thing. Um, and in a similar way, when we talk about the saints, there are some big names that, oh man, everybody's heard of St. Nicholas because he's there having breakfast at the mall with kids at, in December. Um, <laughs> um, but that the, to remember them as saints is to, to be reminded that all of us are capable of reflecting holiness into, into the lives of others. And it's not about drawing attention to ourselves, but about reflecting God's light through us like a prism rather than making it all about ourselves. So if that's the spirit in which we're going to be talking about Nicholas of Myra... Okay, what what where places that where where are things that are solid about this guy's life? Because like is probably pretty evident. There's lots and lots of layers of things, and now people, if they think about Saint Nicholas, tend to automatically go, "Oh yeah, Santa Claus. He's the one with the flying reindeer who brings presents." So taking it back to the historical Nicholas. Okay, Nicholas. Um, he was a bishop. Okay. He was the nephew of a bishop originally. Like his uncle was the bishop first, and then his uncle died. And at his death, um, the local bishops kind of gathered and said, okay, how are we going to elect the new bishop? Who's going to do it? Mm-hmm. Oh, whoever walks into the church next, he's going to be the next priest. He's going to be the next bishop. Well, 
Nicholas, who was a priest, was in fact sad that his beloved uncle died. So he went to the church to pray for his uncle. And he was in fact the next priest that walked in. So he was elected Bishop of Myra. So it's got a little bit of the feel of like the Jephthah's daughter story from Judges and that whoever happens to come in next is the, mm-hmm. is the yep, one. Yep. Now it, maybe it's worth saying a little bit in the what's going on in, in history at this point. Because um, even though we use the word bishop and sometimes we automatically sort of jump to like the pomp and circumstance and pointy headgear of bishops we see uh, these days. Um, in the year 300, this is even technically it's before the church becomes legal. It, it'll be around the year 300, give or take, mm-hmm. that um, Emperor Constantine makes it legal to be a Christian. So this is right around the time that Constantine is the emperor uh, of the Roman and now becoming Byzantine Empire. Um, and that means that while it's becoming safer for Christians, uh, it's not completely safe. In fact, one of the things that uh, ancient witnesses about Nicholas's life will testify is that he went through the... Uh, persecution of the Emperor Diocletian, who was just a little bit beforehand, and that <clears throat> for whatever positives and negatives happened with Constantine making it legal to be a Christian, this is still within living memory of people having been fed to lions, put in the Colosseum, killed, crucified, whatever, for their faith in Jesus. And so this is still like a movement that had been underground, sort of coming out of the shadows and learning how to not be illegal. So being a bishop wasn't exactly uh, prestigious in the sense of, mm-hmm. man, you're set for life, you'll get a pension and a glorious palace to live in. It was more like, you're the first one they're going to come for when the next round of persecution comes out. In fact, I believe there are stories that Nicholas was imprisoned for yeah. a while mm-hmm. for being a Christian. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, again, when, when we do, you know, when we picture what it was to be Bishop of Myra in Turkey at this time, it's worth us going... This is maybe less, you know, a pomp and circumstance than a guy sitting behind a desk, you know, like just stamping things or, you know, making decrees and preaching sermons. But, like, this was a guy who had lived through uh, in the trenches, who I mean, who'd mm. been in prison, who ministered and cared for people and knew what it was like for the followers of Jesus to be persecuted. Uh, and even though those days were maybe waning and that uh, by the end of Constantine's reign in the empire, it was now legal, it was safe for Christians to come out of the shadows... Even even talking about a church building, this is probably not a super regal thing with lots of gold everywhere. The, the early church, even for the first several centuries, eventually got around to, well, we could build a building where we could meet, or we could use that old empty you know, hall or whatever. But it wasn't that we had, you know, don't, don't picture St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican these days. In, in Nicholas's day, this is much more modest, and it's much more dangerous to be a leader of the followers of Jesus, or at least it had been in recent memory. Maybe the other thing to say out loud... Um, at least it seems important to me to say out loud right now, about um, a guy who was a bishop in modern-day Turkey, um, is that when we picture Santa Claus, we tend to picture the way the movies depict him as basically an elderly white man um, you know, with, with jolliness, and then the reindeer sometimes come along in the picture <laughs> as well. Um, but here's someone who lives in Asia Minor, um, whose skin would have been a darker complexion than mine, for sure, um, who didn't speak English. <laughs> um, and so, like, this is worth remembering. Like, oh, okay, the picture that we have of Santa Claus has, has been dramatically altered from what it would have been to be the actual bishop of Turkey in the year 300. So he's someone who's probably got wounds and scars from when he's been roughed up in prison before. He's someone whose uh, skin is darker and hair uh, is, is curlier and whose complexion is different than mine and who doesn't speak my language either and doesn't just look like um, a, a German and English uh, elf guy who flies around in a sleigh. And part of the story of St. Nicholas is that as a priest, as a bishop in this time, he gave away his family's money. Yeah. Because as 
the oldest son or only son, unclear as to which, um, when his parents died, he now had his family fortune. And having taken that, you know, vow of poverty, had to give away his money. And so he also probably would not have been round like yeah, our yeah. current vision of Santa Claus. He probably would have been a pretty skinny man. It's interesting to me too how you know for a lot of the, the stories we have of people who are leaders in the in the church in those first several centuries, um, how how many of their stories begin with and they gave away wealth uh, to those who were in need around them. This is sort of like the default assumption because Maybe because it was close enough to uh, the actual life and witness of Jesus and the apostles that, like, they got that—that that was an important piece of following Jesus was not being in love with your money, but instead giving it to people uh, who could use it. Um, and that, for whatever other legends have accumulated about Nicholas, the the earliest memories are he was a guy who was a leader in the church when it was dangerous to be church, and he was recklessly generous, uh, giving away family wealth. When, like, you know, we live in an era would be like, oh no, he should have put those in a trust fund, or he should have made a, you know an, an endowment fund, or he should have you know lived off of it, you know, and made more money. We, we tend to live in an era where if you've got wealth, the assumption is you need to make more of that wealth so that there can be more, and then you can do good stuff with it. And the earliest uh, memory of folks like Nicholas, as well as you know Francis of Assisi, and a long, long list of others, is that they were they they were known to be people who were on the same wavelength as Jesus, mm-hmm. because they took the wealth that they had and they looked for ways to give it away because they recognized it was all God's anyway. And for whatever other details of stories about sacks of gold flying through the air <laughs> um, uh, that, 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 that are attested to later, there's a grounding, and here's someone who got it, who understood that being a leader in the people of Jesus meant generosity like Jesus. Mm-hmm. But because he was wealthy, that's where a lot of his story, you know, that, that generosity comes from. And mm-hmm. so we've, we've mentioned it kind of in passing a few times, the sacks of gold that go flying through the right, air. Right, right, right. And so maybe it's time we, we touch point on Let's some of these. Let's tell that story. Some of these stories about St. Nicholas. And so there was um, a father with three daughters, and for whatever reason, they, they were poor. Whether they were born that way or, you know, he lost his money gambling it away on something. These women needed dowries to be able to marry and, and not have to end up selling themselves, mm-hmm. you know, in, into prostitution. And so mysteriously, on three different occasions, these sacks of gold show up. At their house, and they get thrown through a window, and they land in either a stocking or a shoe that's sitting by the fireplace, and hence where we get you know the stories now about you know Santa Claus and hanging stockings and, and things by the fireplace. But it's supposedly it's Saint Nicholas being generous and saying, you know what, this family needs money so their daughters can marry well, mm-hmm. and so he, but he doesn't do it for himself. You know, right. he doesn't do it to show off. He doesn't do it. You know, oh, look at me, you know, I'm Nicholas and I have money, so I'm going to... Right. You know, he does it in a very secretive way, which is also part of the Jesus way. Yeah. It's not just giving up your money, but, you know, Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And we live in an era where the big donations, it's, you know, here's the big ceremonial photo op with the giant foam check, you know, that we're Uh giving. And look look at this good deed that we're doing. And then it's really as much a photo op for the giver. And the story that gets told and remembered about Nicholas is here's somebody who knew a need in his community and didn't want these young women to to end up on the street or to have to sell themselves or whatever and wants them to be able to marry. And again, that's a whole separate conversation about what marriage looked like in the third century and all the the, the baggage of having to have a dowry so you can marry well. Clearly, this was not the sort of post-romantic period that we live in of you marry for love, and you know, it's like a, a romantic comedy, and Lloyd Dobler has the stereo above his head playing um, uh, music. Um, but um, 
this is okay. Given that structure, given that society, here's someone who who wants to be compassionate toward people in his community, and he does it selflessly when nobody's watching at night. He gives some of his wealth away so that they can be out of their predicament. Um, and while we can't trace other stuff to prove that story happened, uh, that at least is an early story that's remembered about Nicholas. And there's no reason to not believe it. At least, and mm-hmm. like, there's there's nothing magical. There's nothing. There's no reindeer that talk in that story. There's no reason not to believe that kind of story. It fits with the character and the things that we do know about this guy who is bishop of in in bishop in Turkey. So generosity, and again, like spin this out several centuries or maybe a, a thousand, 1,500 years later, and this character has now become the one who visits our children now and brings them goodies in their stockings and things like that. But at least the rooting in this is someone who saw a need and was generous and didn't make it all about himself. Like that's, that's part of the story that's worth holding up and going, oh, here's somebody who gets, like you say, what Jesus says about don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing and give in this sort of secret way, don't make yourself the center of attention. And here's somebody who's like, well, I can do that in my life. Here's what it would look like. So as we talk about using the, the stories of these saints as examples of, oh, here's how they played the song in their key signature. Here's how they you know, uh, took the way of Jesus in their life and their circumstances. No, then they're, they're, Nicholas's story becomes an invitation for us. Where are ways that, that we can be generous in ways that don't draw attention to ourselves? Mm-hmm. But how can we simply be eyes open to the needs around us and, and act on it? Okay, now that's probably the most... Um, uh, sweet and sentimental story about Nicholas, but it's not the most fun story about Nicholas. Yes, um, not at all. Yeah, so, all right, now, and, and let's for a moment stay in the realm of things that are uh, relatively grounded in history, uh, and that's that it's likely uh, that Nicholas would have been at an early church council, the first universal church council, the Council of Nicaea, uh, and is famous for getting into fisticuffs there. Uh, uh, a little bit of uh, table setting, uh, right? Uh, in, in, this, in this era, the year 300, I think 325 is when the Council of Nicaea was called. The church was fighting over uh, how it talked about Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. Give me the the, the short version, Sarah. Uh, Okay, so the short version was um, they they were trying to come up with a creed, something that all Christians believe in. We have the Apostles' Creed, but they needed something a little bit more spelled out. So... um, yeah, they were trying to decide, is Jesus human? Is he God? Is he... And how do we talk about yeah, Jesus? Right, right, right. Like, who is this guy that we're all following? What do we all believe? And so the, the it comes to a head is, like, there were factions emerging in the church, and there were some who were like, Jesus is the best created being. It's like, you know, God's like executive vice president. He's the vice president in charge of hum, you know, human affairs. Uh, and uh, there's another group that says, no, whatever it is to talk about Jesus, and he, he's, he's human, but at the same time he's also fully God, and that, that means it's no less than God who enters a human life and is born in a manger and who goes through death and resurrection that... Uh, Jesus is fully God. Maybe they're, 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 they're figuring out what it means to say that, but that was the, the one position that was emerging. And uh, the way they, they were trying to resolve this was to follow the example they'd seen from even in the book of Acts when the church was wrestling over, can Gentiles come in as Gentiles? Oh, let's get together and talk it out in what they came to call the Jerusalem Council. And so it was a, let's talk it out, let's, let's argue it out, let's figure it out, and then let's decide how are we going to talk about this Jesus and so a council gets called. This is the first time anything quite like this has ever been done. But uh, interestingly enough, it wasn't a top-down, like, all right, let's find one person, they call the shots, and they get to decree what it is. We, we, all you who are leaders in the church, you who've been handed this faith down uh, from those who came before you, how, how are we going to answer this out? 
And there at Nicaea, um, these sort of two main positions, uh, one that becomes what we might call classic Orthodox Christianity, was represented by a guy named Athanasius, who's famous for um, being the guy defending Jesus as fully God all the way down. Uh, and then another, the, the other opponent, uh, the, the opposing position is a guy named Arius, whose famous quote is, there was a time when he was not, that Jesus, there was a time when there was no Jesus, there was no Christ, there was no Son of God, uh, that Jesus or Christ is the first and most awesomest creation of God, but is not quite, he's like, he's like God, he's like, you know, Diet Coke mm. of God, he's the God light or something like that. Um, and Athanasius' position was, no, he's Coke. <laughs> he's, he's as Coke as God the Father is. Uh, the full thing, real deal. So in the midst of that, uh, where, does, where does Nicholas enter into the scene? So in the midst of that, Nicholas gets very upset at um, Arius and, and what he's saying because he believes that what he's saying is heretical. Now, we don't know, you know, we don't have what is and is not heretical at this time. As you said, Steve, you know, we're still trying to figure this out. Yeah. We're still working on this. But Nicholas gets a lot of, little hot-tempered, and he decides to punch Arius in the face. Now, again, this is, uh, this is the, the long, a long-standing church tradition, mm-hmm. um, and one of the difficulties we have is arguments from silence from the people who attest what it was like to have been at the Council of Nicaea. There are a handful of first-hand accounts of people who say, I was at the Council of Nicaea, and they will tell, here's people I saw, here or there, and here's what we talked about. And there are some early attestations, there's some uh, records of Nicholas was there, and he punched Arius in the face, or slapped him in the face, depending on which um, uh, religious painting you, <laughs> you are looking at, and others who don't mention it. There's nobody who says, no, there was no punch, there's just some who don't, don't tell the story, and you and might... they don't even mention that Nicholas, Nicholas is there. there. Like, his name is omitted from <clears throat> some from of the some lists. some records of who mm-hmm. was there. So, this is a, a, a tough spot. It's... it's confirmed he would have been Bishop of Myra in modern-day Turkey in the time that this was happening. Mm-hmm. It's likely that all the leaders, people who are known to be church leaders, would have been called to come to this event. There are some ancient historians who list him as on the guest list, or the attenders, or delegates, or whatever, and there are some who don't. But, uh, at the very least, Nicholas is remembered as one of the staunch defenders of uh, what became the Orthodox position, that Jesus is fully God all the way down, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Maybe the, the the next question that comes to my mind is, okay, what are we supposed to learn from this? Why are we telling this story other than it's funny about picturing bishops punching people? Um, and I guess I guess the the, the thing that, that I want to poke at a little bit is um, that, like like you said, Erica, here's a guy uh, in, a, in an era when the whole church is trying to sort of figure out how we put into words this faith of ours, and um, that that being clear about what we believe is important is important enough even to slap a guy in the face for saying something that you think is, is wrong. Um, but the important thing in my mind is um, that this, this wasn't like um, the way later the word heresy gets used as sort of like, well, for a thousand years this has been the official church teaching, we can't be wrong about it, so if you disagree with us, we kill you or bring you at the stake or send the Inquisition after you. This is at a time when the church was doing wrestling about, what, yeah, what, what do we think? How do we put this into words? And so it's it's a courageous thing for Nicholas to take a stand and say, no, this is this is important. This this is what I believe, and and to take that kind of stand. Um, that it was scary in a way that it, you know now we use the word heretic and it's sort of a power grab of you know whatever the institutional church says you have to fall in line or else we'll stone you or you know whatever. And there have been plenty of times in later church history where whoever got labeled the heretic got burned at the stake or excommunicated or rocks thrown at them or called a witch or whatever. And at least I come from a tradition. Sarah and I come from the Lutheran tradition. And we know what it's like for the the older brother in the faith we look back to to have been someone who's branded and labeled a heretic and whose life was put at stake. So it's not just to say oh. Whoever's a heretic, they're automatically wrong. It's 
huh, sometimes the people who get labeled heretics, uh, we have to listen to and figure out, huh, what, what, what do they have to say? Where, why do we agree or disagree with them? Um, and that, that sometimes there's a gift in these moments of controversy and that it forces us to be clear about, well, yeah, what do we actually think about this mm-hmm. Jesus? Is he just God's vice president of human affairs or is he fully all the way down God? And without that moment of clarity that came about in Nicaea, we would have been unclear about, you know, who, who is this Jesus and just, just what lengths is God willing to go for us? Arius got uncomfortable with the idea of a God who goes all the way to getting born in a manger and dying on a cross. That just didn't seem fitting for a respectable deity. And the voices that became orthodoxy, I think, are the more radical voices because they're like, mm-hmm. yep, there's nothing that God isn't willing to suffer and to endure for us. God's even willing to get born in a human life. God's even willing to die on a cross. God's even willing to know what it's like to be God-forsaken dying on a cross, uh, and that you're required to come up with something like the Trinity to explain that. Um, but that these things matter, and it's worth holding on to um, the, the, those, that, that, that deep, deep, deep faith, and even when it's, even it's scary and we're wrestling it out together. You see, this is the story of Nicholas that I struggle with the most, because here they are wrestling it out, like trying to figure it out, like what does do we as the church believe? Mm-hmm. And so do we hold this moment of Nicholas punching Arius in the <laughs> right. face as a positive or a negative? Right, right, right. And, you know, in some ways, in hindsight, going, oh, yeah, well, Arius was wrong. He was being a heretic. Of course he should be punched in the face. But at the same time, at that time, there wasn't really an orthodoxy. There wasn't <laughs> this is what's correct and right. this is what's wrong. They're still wrestling it out. So to me, this is lack of pastoral listening yeah, yeah. on Nicholas's mm-hmm. part. And I wouldn't necessarily say that we should lift it up as a shining example right. of what we should do. Um, but, you know, it, it, it it's something that I certainly struggle with because... Yeah, of course you should believe and be firmly believed and rooted in what you believe in. And Nicholas was that <laughs> for sure. But I think that he maybe could have made his point in a better nonviolent yeah. way. Yeah, well, yeah. And I, I think one of the things that I, I like about talking about this episode is there are some historians who say it's likely this happened because this would have been embarrassing to uh, Nicholas. And the reason that some historians must have left it out is they didn't want to embarrass Nicholas mm-hmm. and to say... Yeah, th- this isn't this isn't meant to be an example of we should go punching people we disagree mm-hmm. with. My goodness, the world we live in and the society we live in needs to be reminded, don't punch people just because you disagree with them. Um, and maybe I think what, what's especially valuable about remembering the, the historical moment about when this punching happens is that it's not exactly that, that Nicholas does this from the position of power of it, that, that uh, he's got a, a thousand years of or, or a, a whole bunch of Popes and people behind him saying, "I'm right, you're wrong." But it's it, this is this is the the lived controversy of people trying to figure mm. this out. Again, I, I don't I, I I hear your point. This is not meant to be like uh, we now have justification. If you believe something hard enough, you're allowed to punch people because you believe it so hard. Um, and I think this is one of those points for me to lift up the to call someone a saint isn't to say that the calls they made in their circumstances are always the right one. So even mm. to, to lift up from this episode. Hooray that he's on the side of Athanasius and the side of what becomes Trini- uh, Trinitarian theology. I'm, I, I'm so glad he was. That's great. On the flip side, yeah, 
if one one day in glory, I can imagine sitting around the table talking with Nicholas and hearing him go, "Yeah, that was a dumb move to make. Uh, that didn't advance the gospel because that didn't reflect Christ." I mean, someone who's known in other ways for reflecting the generosity of Christ, like blew it here. This would have been a chance to say, when we disagree with people, we model being the grown up, and uh, when someone else goes low, we go high. We don't hit back. We don't have to. And, and uh, I, I imagine one day we, we might get to have that conversation with Nicholas and to hear him go, yeah, not one of my better moments, but I'm beloved of God despite that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. This is, this, is, this is one of those things that's funny for us to mention because it's, we don't picture bishops punching people. <laughs> um, or hopefully. Yeah, we yeah, we hope. Or saints in general. You know? Right, right, right. <laughs> And at the same time, to go, just because it's funny doesn't mean that this is something that we want to uplift and say, this is one of the top great things that he did. But to be able to say, he, had, he, was, on, he was on the right side, maybe, but he blew it because he, he, mm-hmm. he lived it in, in a stupid way. Um, okay, so, so there, those, those pieces of Nicholas's life uh, are reasonably grounded in historical witness, uh, or at the very least there are people who uh, for centuries and centuries and centuries go back to say, yep, uh, Nicholas is probably there at Nicaea. Yep, he probably gave money to poor people and possibly including dowry money for the window. Um, other, other interesting episodes that are worth noting, even if they are not um, something we hang a whole lot of weight on. So there is this really sh- small story where um, apparently he cut down a tree that was possessed by a demon. (laughs) And that's really all I know. But apparently there was a tree, it was possessed by a demon, and he cut it down. And was that to stop the tree from being possessed by a demon? I guess. I guess that's how you exercise a tree is you just cut it down. Which is a shame because now that tree is dead. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, you have a demon. Let me kill you. <laughs> like, well, Problem that, solved. That doesn't hurt the demon. <laughs> um, but My problem is, why is a demon possessing a tree in the first place? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There isn't a whole lot known about that story. I'm guessing that we only still have that story because... Oh, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, Christmas trees. Yeah. Maybe, but even yeah. that's a stretch. I, I think that's a, a really important case study, though, about like how people whose lives really mattered and really did things in the real, actual, lived mm-hmm. world then become these sort of heroic figures or bigger-than-life kind of legends, and things that we want to associate with them end up getting attached to them, whether or not there's good reason to believe mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you've got a floating-around story about someone who fights off a demonic tree by cutting it down, and you've got another guy we associate with Christmas time, and centuries later we're putting trees in our houses, forgetting the sort of ancient Germanic pagan roots of the Yuletide and bringing in the evergreens that are behind that, sure, we're going to attach that to Nicholas. And I, I guess this may be an important reminder here, that as we talk about people who are remembered as saints... Um, the goal is not to make them all out to be like superheroes, members of the Justice League. They all had to do miracles. And again, like this may be a different for us in the Protestant branches of the Christian family tree. That part of the Roman Catholic process is even after a person has died, they have to have been reported to have made some miracle happen in order to get the official status of canonization. And uh, I don't think the New Testament talks about saints in that way. That yeah. You have to have done something miraculous, no. but you have to be ordinary and let God's light shine through all your ordinariness. So we can hold up a story like Nicholas and go, there's a real life there. There's a real person who is generous to people who were in need and maybe even did it in secretive ways because it wasn't all about him and he defended truth and sometimes messed up and sometimes punched people when he could have talked with people. Um, but there's a real life there that was captivated by the kingdom of God and by the love of Jesus. Um, 
And there are ways he got it right, and there are ways he got it wrong. Those things are worth holding on to. And you don't have to, even if we say, yeah, the stuff with the demonic tree are unlikely to have actually happened, uh, we don't have to throw out the rest of the story of the rest of the life uh, to find something valuable there. Um, we may need to talk, come the end of this series, about how we live in a culture that is infatuated with Santa Claus and has distanced that from mm-hmm. the god that... Uh, that um, Nicholas himself actually had anything to do with, um, and maybe the differences in Santa Claus theology and the the gospel that that uh, Nicholas fought so hard for, sometimes even punched people in the face for. Um, but at least for today, those are the things we wanted to talk about about Nicholas. So yep. the church remembers him on December the 6th, because that's the day that tradition holds that he died. Um, again, living early enough that he might have seen... Uh, it become legal to be a Christian, but with the scars on his body still from having gone through suffering for his faith for it, mm-hmm. and at least for that courage and that generosity in difficult times, he, his story is worth remembering. Absolutely. All right, well, uh, join us next time for more adventures in uh, interesting uh, people from the church family, uh, church family histories. We talk more about saints here in Advent. See you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.